0: Well, you've probably figured out by now that I'm not Brent. Um, I'll be your pilot tonight as we continue to soar through our our Bible, going through the book of Joshua tonight. And uh, we're going to show a video in just a short moment. So we've been going through the Bible for the last, oh, how many weeks? Five, six weeks or so. Um, let's remember that the whole of the Bible uh, is actually 66 books. I know there's some confusion in that. Some people think that it's one book, but it's not. It's actually 66 books. And in our study, Brent has mentioned a number of times um, that, that in the Bible, there's a scarlet thread that's woven through every book and every chapter and every verse of scripture. And that scarlet thread is leading us to one individual towards Jesus Christ. And the early church father, Augustine, he spoke of this remarkable relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he said this, he said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember, because when we're talking to someone and they want to know about the Bible, where do we want to point them to in order to begin their understanding of Scripture? I don't think it would be a good idea to start them off in Genesis and then have them work their way through Revelation because they're going to get lost. Probably a good place to start would be the Gospel of John. Um, The Gospel of John talks about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's so important that someone get a grasp of who the Savior is before they get caught up and, and confused with some of the other things that are found, especially in the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is pointing us to this promised Redeemer. And from from our our beginning study in Genesis, this Redeemer was destined to be the serpent crusher. We learned about that in Genesis, early in the first chapter, or second chapter, the serpent crusher. crusher. And then he was to be a prophet like Moses. Um, Isaiah later on speaks about the suffering servant. Uh, He's mentioned again and again in scriptures being the son of David. And then he's the Messiah of Daniel. And he's the humble king of Zechariah. Now, we've only just begun our cruise through scripture, but it's already being laid out clearly for us, this scarlet thread. So let's open our Bibles And let's open our study with reading the first first nine verses of chapter 1. Verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all his, this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, and as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, uh, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So, in these opening verses, we learn, of course, what we learned last week that Moses has died, and God has now chosen Joshua to be the new leader and the general over the nation of Israel. Now, most likely, Joshua is the author of the book that bears his name, at least for the first 23 chapters. Chapter 24, it's uh, probably written by the priest Eleazar. Or uh, possibly his son Phineas. And our our connection with Jesus is found in the name of the the book. It's found in the name Joshua. And Joshua uh, is the Hebrew name Yeshua. And the Greek translation of which is Jesus. So we have learned so far that under Moses, Israel did not enter the promised land. We know what happened. He sent in uh, spies. Uh, They came back, and only two of the spies said, yeah, let's go and take the land. Uh, The rest of them uh, discouraged the people, and as a result, they turned away from crossing the Jordan, (laughs) and they spent 40 years cruising through the desert until every one of them had died. So the land was not accessed by them Because of their disbelief and their disobedience to God, they never received the land under the law. But now we have a new leader, and God is telling them to go and take the land. And God says in our text, I am giving you this land. And I think that's really important to to make note of. God says, I am giving you this land. You see, but the law was unable to do, God did by grace. And this this understanding that we're getting here of God giving to us is the same understanding that we get when we turn to God and ask him to come into our lives. And we receive forgiveness for all of our shortcomings as a free gift, a free gift of grace. Now, there would be work to do. God doesn't say, hey, you can go and sit and never have to do anything anymore. But no, there's work to be done. And we find that there's work to be done even though we've received grace. We haven't had to do anything in order to get grace. We don't have, any, have to do anything in order to keep grace because it was given to us and it is ours for the taking. The Apostle John writes in chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I think we'll discover together tonight, as we continue in our study in, in Joshua, uh, that we see this, um, this truth being presented to us. But let's, uh, let's watch this video. Oh, there we go.
1: The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the Promised Land. And then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites. And so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new leader. Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, So here, the River Jordan parts, and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people, and so the new generation is circumcised, and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither. Which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle. And Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups. And the first part retells the story of two battles in detail. And that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai. And they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same But they don't. And so on the seventh day, the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down, leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel simply needs to trust and wait. Now, the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So, there's this Israelite named Achan, and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone, and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so, Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai, and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group. And they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second because odds are that these stories and the violence in them they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder like Didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So, first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them, So, you can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So, for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later, in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy. Joshua reminds them of God's generosity, how he brought them into the land and rescued them from the Canaanites. And so he calls them to turn away from the Canaanite gods and be faithful to the covenant they made. If they do, it will lead to life and blessing in the land. But if they're unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked off the land into exile. And so Joshua leaves Israel with a choice. What is Israel going to do? That's the big question that looms as the story ends, and that's the book of Joshua.
0: Alright. So tonight as we go through Joshua, um, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the following outline. It's, uh, it's a little bit different than what we just saw in the video. I've only taken three points, but the first one is that they're going to be entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. Then we're going to see them conquering the land, chapters 6 through 12. And then finally the distribution of the land, chapters 13 through 14, or 24, sorry. Now, it's important for us to know that Joshua is the first book of the Bible that actually details the history of God's people in their own land. It's, it's the very start of their entry into the land of Israel, that promised land. It marks the beginning of the historical books. You know the Bible is divided into various uh, genres of, of literature, um, the first five books are known as the law books, and then we're entering into history now. Um, Joshua begins where Deuteronomy left us, and uh, that was with the death of Moses, and then, of course, the promotion of God, uh, or uh, promotion of Joshua by God. Joshua is in his late 70s, early 80s, we're not totally sure, but you know uh, his story. His story was that he was the assistant to Moses. Um, he was also one of the 12 spies that Moses had sent into the promised land. Uh, and, and he, along with Caleb, were the only two of the spies that said, Yeah, this land is ready for us. You know, everything that God said it was going to be, it is land flowing with milk and honey, let's go in and and get them. But the other spies uh, said, no way, there's giants in there, we can't take them. And as a result, Caleb and Joshua were the only ones of the previous generation that lived um, to enter the promised land. All the others died in the wilderness. Now God told Joshua, take a look at verse 3. He said to him, he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. So God, once again, reveals for us that he is a a promise-keeping God. He is the first promise-keeper. And and he tells uh, Joshua, you've got nothing to be afraid about. Everything that I told Abraham, everything that I told Moses, everything I'm telling you is going to come to pass. And so we see God's faithfulness being fulfilled. We can be sure in our our own walk with Christ, we can be sure that whatever God starts, God is going to finish. And I, I find that such an encouragement. When I read through scripture and I see the promises of God and I see how each of those promises are fulfilled and there are so many more promises that are yet to be fulfilled But I have, without a shadow of a doubt, an understanding that God is going to complete his work. He is going to fulfill those promises. If you're anything like me, you have have fears, and and you have doubts, and you have times of uncertainty. And, you know, we, we don't like to be that way, but it comes upon us. And here we see, at the very beginning of Joshua, several times, matter of fact, that God has to speak to Joshua to be encouraged, to be strong, to be courageous. Now, why did God have to do that time and time again? Well, obviously, Joshua was pretty anxious about what he was about to take on. I mean, he had some pretty big sandals to fill. And so God wanted to set him on the right course and just... Talk to him and say, you know, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm going to do it for you. Everything that I've, I've promised you, I'm going to accomplish. And it's a good reminder for us that the strength and courage and prosperity and success that I believe we all want is found in Scripture. It's found through the Word of God. Take a look at verse 8 with me. God says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. See, the Bible is not just, you know, the the emergency device that we look for in times of, of trial. We don't go up to a glass case and break the glass and take up the Bible and say, okay, what am I supposed to do in this, in this situation? The Bible is there for us in order to be instructed. So when we find ourselves succumbing to fear and doubt, if we've already spent time in Scripture, if, we, if we've already, as God says to Joshua, to meditate every day and night in it, then we will be ready to accept or to to combat those situations, those times of of fear and doubt and anxiety. In chapter 2, Joshua wants to scope out the land, so he sends out his own spies. And he sends out two spies, because they're only going to be looking at Jericho. But the king of Jericho, we find in our text, finds out that spies have come into his city, and he goes out trying to seize them. And where are they? Well, they found a, a hiding place in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And as the search party comes to her house, asking her where these men are that were seen entering her house, she says that they were in fact there, but they have now left, And so this search party goes out in pursuit of them. Meanwhile, the guys are up on her roof, hiding under stacks of flax. But before she had hidden the men, this is what she said to them. Look at verse 9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. I find that remarkable. In In this city of Jericho, all of the people knew what had happened to the Israelites from the time they left Egypt. And yet she is the only one that now comes to them and says, I know God is true. I know God is real. So we see then that Rahab has a a moment or, or speaks out an act of faith. She had heard what God had done in Egypt and how he had kept this nation, Israel, safe in their journey through the wilderness. And then in verse 11, she states her belief in God. And she asks for his protection from the coming invasion. And the the spies grant her request. When we believe God, when we receive his offering of grace, we receive an assurance of salvation. It's an assurance of salvation from his coming wrath. And I find it remarkable as we begin our study here in Joshua and we see the the faith of this woman Rahab that the very first convert in the promised land is a Gentile prostitute. I mean, I, I find that really remarkable. The promises of God are for everyone, for the Jew and for the Gentile. And Paul speaks about that. He says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so everyone is able to partake of the promises of God. Everyone is able to partake of the salvation of God. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether whether you're high or whether you're low, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you have deep, deep sin or whether you think you're a good person. God's promise of salvation is for everyone who believes. And Rahab voiced her belief. So before leaving, the spies now instruct Rahab that she was to place this scarlet cord, which she, which she was given by them, this scarlet cord in the window of her house. Now, scarlet is the color of what? Blood. Yeah. And we know that, that during Passover in Egypt, the very first Passover, they were to put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their homes. And in doing so, the angel of death would see and would pass over. And here, they don't have time to go out and get a lamb and paint her doorposts. They say, look, tie this scarlet cord on your window. The color of blood. It reminds us so strongly, I believe, that the blood of Jesus Christ marks us and sets us apart from unbelievers. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, sins according to the riches of his grace. So Rahab and her family are saved. But this is not the last time we hear of Rahab. Rahab eventually marries a Hebrew man named Salmon, and she becomes the mother of Boaz, And Boaz became the great-great-grandfather of David, Israel's greatest king. Her name we find again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 in the New Testament. In that, that portion of scripture which lays out those that are found in the halls of faith, the great halls of faith. And then we also see her name in the genealogy of Jesus himself. I find that just amazing, you know, that in in this this man Jesus, his genealogy is found this Gentile prostitute. As we move into chapter three, Joshua now begins to prepare the people to cross the Jordan River and entering the land for the first time. And as we as we look at what takes place, we see this this beautiful picture of sanctification, this, this process of being made holy. Even as we saw on the, uh, on the video how God had taken them through the Red Sea when they left Egypt. Now he's going to take them through the River Jordan. And as we look at, these, at the uh, procession, we see that it wasn't the army first, I mean, if if it was me going to attack an enemy fortress, I'd be sending the army in. You you guys go and have at it, and then once you're done, we'll come and follow. But we don't see that. What we see happening is we see the priests going first, and what are they carrying? They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence with his people. So we, we see God going first. And every person could see the Ark of the Covenant being carried by the priests, being moved into the Promised Land. And the moment the priest's feet touched the edge of the Jordan River, the scriptures tell us that the the water stood up in a pile and they were able to cross over on dry land. Who is our high priest? Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone before us. Isn't that what he told his disciples? I go to prepare a place for you. God is going to prepare a place for his people. God always goes first, and he prepares a way for us. You see, God doesn't asks us before we can enter in that we have to get our act together. We have to get our, our ship shape in shape, we, that we have to... to you know, do things or do something. He just asks us to trust him. He doesn't require us to deal with our issues before we can enter. God goes before us. And God has parted the waters of separation for us. And so when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior, all that's left to do is to follow him. And we see that happening as they enter the land. The Ark of the Covenant going first, being borne by the priests, and then it's the people following in behind. Take a look um, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, because God needs them to deal with something before they can continue. There's some unfinished business. Uh, sorry, uh, it's chapter 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself, and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself, and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way. After they had come out of Egypt, for all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised her sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were circumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. We're seeing an act of consecration. Consecration is a fancy Christian term meaning to be set aside for a sacred purpose. And that's that's what these people were being prepared for. They were being prepared to be set aside for a sacred purpose. And consecration must always precede conquest. And circumcision was that, that outward sign. Thank you. Circumcision was that Outward signs signifying an inward change. See, it's not simply enough for us to say, yeah, I'm going to follow God. There has to be an inward change. Because we're to love the Lord our God with what? All our minds, all our hearts, all our souls, right? Everything that we are, physically, mentally, and spiritually. We're supposed to love God And so we see this act of consecration taking place, where it represented, circumcision represented this cutting away of the flesh and then being consecrated or set apart to God and His purpose. We can struggle with sin. I don't, I don't think there's anyone here, including myself, if we were honest that wouldn't say, oh, you know, there are times I just don't get it. You know, why do I keep falling and failing, overcoming sin? Maybe because we haven't really grasped a deep understanding of, of what consecration is, to, to be set apart for a holy purpose. And circumcision is such a, a good picture of this because our flesh is real. Like, we, we know, you know, when the Bible talks about our flesh, it's, it's talking about our, our preponderance to sin. It's talking about our, our uh, temptations. And so circumcision is, is an actual cutting away of that flesh. And that's, that's how we are to look at being consecrated for God. We are to cut out the things that we like or desire that aren't godly. Well, how do I find out? Well, what what things aren't godly? Well, that's why it's so important that we do what Joshua was told by God, but to study the word of of God day and night so that we can be prosperous and successful and, and, and ready. He wants us to cut out of our lives anything carnal, Because his desire for us is to grow us spiritually. And all sin does is grow our flesh. It it calls to us. It entices us. It tempts us. That's all that sin does. But that's not God's desire for us. God's desire is that we grow in wisdom and understanding and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And grow spiritually. And grow godly. And I want you to notice in verse 8 that they stayed in their place in the camp until they were healed. I find for myself when I have a battle that I'm fighting against sin, against temptation, that the battle is easier and more readily won when I take time before god when i go to god in prayer when i go to god in his word and and i want to be healed from these temptations i want to be healed from from these sins just as the people needed to be healed from circumcision so now now they've been consecrated they've in a sense been baptized as well when they came through the jordan river Baptized and consecrated, now they're ready to conquer the land. Chapter 6 through 12. We see at the end of chapter 5 that they also observe Passover. And then we see a scene taking place where Joshua is by himself and he's looking out over Jericho. What do you think he was thinking? He, he's looking at this fortress before him and the high walls. And I'm sure. Doubts came into his mind. How are we ever going to do this? I'm sure we've all had those moments. We're faced with something that just seems beyond us. Was Joshua scared? Was he worried? Probably. And we can find ourselves like that as well. But I want you to know this morning that living a new life in Christ can be intimidating. It really isn't the cakewalk. You know, like so many people think, oh, you know, it's just so easy-peasy, you believe in Jesus Christ and all things are hunky-dory. No, no, it's, it's difficult. It can be intimidating. But it's so important at those moments, at those times, that we remember we're not alone in this. We're not alone. Where is God? God has gone ahead of us. Where is our Lord and Savior? He's gone ahead of us. He's standing before our Father in heaven, interceding for us. We're not alone in this. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Well, Joshua might have been or may have been Israel's general but any of us who have been in the armed forces know that even generals have commanders and chiefs. And Jesus appears before Joshua. Now, how do I know that this is Jesus and not just an angel? Because we see what Joshua does there in verse 14. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. No angel would ever allow a mere man to worship him. And the place where Joshua was, was holy ground. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus encourages and directs Joshua. You see the Lord coming again to Joshua, saying, don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Be strong. Be courageous. It's, I think, something for us to... Grasp that in order to get ready for a fight, what should we do? We should do as Joshua did. We should fall down on our knees in worship. I really encourage you, if, if you're going through a difficult time, be in prayer. Be in the word. Put on some worship music and worship the Lord in this time, in this difficult time. Call a brother or two or a sister or two and have them pray with you when the fight is so great but never forget you're not alone. You see our victories will result when we spend time when we have these these private moments with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being reminded of how we've been saved through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking if we forget that God is in charge and just go rushing out, we're we're going to get defeated. We're going to see an example of that in just a moment. So Jericho was there waiting for them. And they had prepared for their arrival, according to chapter 6, verse 1. Jericho had been shut up securely, but the Lord confirmed that he had given Jericho into Joshua's hand. And then the Lord instructs Joshua what he was to do. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, for six days, without a sound, I just want you to walk around the walls of Jericho every day and then go back to camp. And then the next morning, do it again. And then go back to camp and do that for six days. But on the seventh day, you're to go around the city seven times. And then at the end of the seventh time, they are to blow their trumpets and then the people are to shout with a great shout. We've, um, we've just uh, had our memorial on November the 11th. Remembering World War I and World War II, remembering all of our soldiers and there have been lots of stories on tv about the great battles that were fought joshua is looking at jericho how he how he as a man would fight a conventional battle but then jesus comes and says no that's not how you to fight how to fight you see conventional warfare would require that they first would lay siege against the city. And this could go on for weeks, months even. As they waited out the inhabitants, as they weakened from uh, when their supplies ran out. Then when they felt that the inhabitants were weak enough, they would then build these ramparts and siege works to go up and breach the walls. And in Jericho's case, these were 30 feet tall. That's a lot of labor, a lot of resources in order to build these ramps. And, and God says, I don't want you to do that. This is what I want you to do. I want you to walk around the walls. Now, if any soldier was to advise their commanders, oh let's just walk around the walls and, and see what happens, they, they'd think they were crazy. And, and for us, when we see God's instructions in His Word, it doesn't always make sense. It really doesn't. We're, we're looking at this and I'm going through this, God, and you want me to do what? It doesn't make any sense. But we are commanded to be obedient to God's Word, nevertheless. You see, God doesn't need huge armies. He doesn't need siege works. He doesn't need ramps. He doesn't need any of that stuff. He can use people blowing trumpets and shouting. And look what happens in verse 20. And so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpets that the people shouted with a great shout. that The wall fell down flat. And then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. So this is what Scripture says. Of course, people that would look at this go, "Well, you know, that's not true." You know, let's let's go and investigate and see what happens. Uh, you know, let's go and find Jericho and and see what actually happened. Well, a fellow by the name of Dr. John Garstang, who was the director of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, he excavated Jericho, the ruins of Jericho, from 1929 to 1936. And it says in our text at verse 20 that the walls fell down flat. And that's exactly what Dr. Garstang found. He found that the walls had fallen down flat. And and he writes this. He says, The wall was double, the two walls being 15 feet apart, the outer wall 6 feet thick, the inner wall 12 feet thick, both being about 30 feet high. They were built, not very substantially, on faulty, uneven foundations of brick four inches thick and one to two feet long, laid in mud mortar. The two walls were linked together by houses built across the top as Rehabs house on the wall. So we see then that the archaeological evidence points out exactly what scripture said took place the walls came down flat and enabled the Israelites then to scamper up the debris and lay siege on the city. And elsewhere in Scripture, we read that they put the city to fire. And that's exactly what Garstang found as well. He found layer after layer of, of ash and soot and, and burnt rubble. And he, he says um, that he found the outer, uh, the outer wall... Had fallen outward and then down the hillside, and as it fell outward, it dragged the inner ho- ho- uh, wall—sorry, the inner wall and the houses—with it. This the streak of bricks as it went down the hill, getting less and less and less, almost making the rampart for them to be able to enter the city. The foundation walls of the palace, four courses of stone high, remained tilted outward. And Dr. Garstang Garstang, thinks there are indications that the walls were actually shaken down by an earthquake, which uh, there are traces of that uh, that can be seen. And it's certainly a method which God could have used as easily as any other. Now, in chapter 6, verse 18, Joshua had warned the people after he received his instructions from God, he had warned the people to leave the accursed things. Now, the accursed things were anything that was used in the worship of the false gods of the Canaanites. We saw in our video uh, that their worship uh, of their deities was sexual in nature, uh, morally uh, abhorrent, uh, that they practiced child sacrifice, and so God says, you're not to have anything to do with these accursed things. Um, But then we see in chapter 7, verse 1, let's read together, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, and so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now the next city that they were to conquer was Ai. But when they went to have a battle against Ai, and it was a much smaller and, and not as fortified city as Jericho was, uh, he only sent 3,000 of his soldiers against this, against this city. But they were defeated. And 36 men were killed. And Joshua cries out to God, going, what is going on? Why were we defeated? And so the Lord reveals that there was sin in the camp. It was the sin of Achan that had brought the defeat. This is so important for us to grasp, guys, because it's so easy to think that when I sin, I'm only hurting myself. I'm not hurting anyone else, but it's not true. We read in Scripture about about sin affecting even unto the fourth generation. Our sin affects our, our spouses, our children our broader family, it affects our church, it affects our neighbors. Sin is not uh, an isolated uh, issue that affects you only and that you bear the consequences of it. No, the the people of Israel were affected. Thirty-six men died. They were defeated in combat. Sometimes we rate sin in terms of lesser or greater sin, and yet the penalty of sin is death, all sin. It doesn't matter what we rate it at. It's, a, oh, it's just a, a lie. It's not murder. It's still, the consequence is death. And we have to understand that sin brings consequences, and sometimes the consequence is severe. All sin is disobedience. All sin is disobedience to God. And now Joshua has to stop in order to deal with this act of disobedience. And they've only just begun their conquest of of the promised land of Canaan. So they could not proceed until sin had been dealt with. But we see that once they had, once they did deal with that sin, that God gave Ai into their hands. Take a look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And so God again gives them victory. And then they move on. But before they move on, Joshua takes a moment and he builds an altar to the Lord in Mount Ebal. Look what he does in verse 32. And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel, uh, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord the strangers as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded before that they should bless the children of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So Joshua does what Moses had done in Deuteronomy chapter 27. He divided the nation into two groups, half standing before Mount Gerizim and half standing before Mount Ebal. And then Joshua reads all the words of the law. The blessings and the cursings to remind the people of the blessing of obedience and also the curse of disobedience. Because they were to be a community whose unity was based upon the word of God. And that hasn't changed. Our community here at Riverside is based upon the unity of the word of God that's why our pastor makes such an effort and does such a good job of teaching us the word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Now through chapters 9 and 11, or through 9 through 11, God continues to give Israel victory in spite of their mistake where they trusted in the inhabitants of Gibeon. The mistake here. And often the mistake that we ourselves can make is when we are confronted with a decision. And the mistake is is told us in chapter 9, verse 14. Have a look at it. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, speaking about the men of Gibeon. They looked at the provisions of the Gibeonites, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Highlight that, underline it, memorize it. Joshua had been told by the Lord back in chapter 1 and verse 8 that he was to meditate upon the word, uh, meditate upon the law day and night, and, and to observe what was written in it. It was only then, and then only, that prosperity and success would follow. But in this situation, they didn't do that. They didn't go before the Lord, they didn't look at the word. Joshua didn't remember what God had told told him to do. They looked at these men who were pretending to have come from a far-off land, way beyond the borders of of the nation of Israel, and they trusted in what they saw. Oh yeah, obviously these guys have come from a long way. Look at their clothes—they're all worn out. Look at the the food they've got—it's all moldy and and, and and, crumbly—and they just, you know, they've come from a long way and they made a judgment and then they made their own plans far better for us in similar situations to trust the advice or to follow the advice that's found in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 7 trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. That's that's what we should be doing, not in our own devices, not in what we think we know or understand, but only in God. In chapter 10, we see Israel is victorious over a five-king coalition that's formed against them, and the Lord again fights for them. He casts down large hailstones, And then Joshua, um, wanting to finish the battle, says, Lord, can you make the sun stop? Can you make the moon stand still so that we can have daylight and finish the battle? And that's exactly what happened. The sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. And once again, we're confronted with something that just seems just impossible to us. But think about who did it. It wasn't Joshua that made the sun stop, the moon stop. It was God. Do we believe God can do this? How big is our view of God and of his power? If this is too difficult for God to do, then is anything else that we expect God to do too difficult as well? If God is confined by the very creation that he made, then he really isn't in control. But God is in control. God is far above anything we can imagine. And perhaps it's our small view of God which limits our abilities to overcome the battles when we face them. Perhaps we're fighting in our own strength or we're making decisions in our own ability instead of doing what Proverbs 3, 5, and and 6 tells us to do, trusting God to lead us and to guide us through whatever comes against us. And so sometimes we we struggle in our walk as Christians because of what I said earlier, because of fear, because of doubt or uncertainty, or, or getting our eyes on ourselves and our situation and not on Jesus Christ, the God who will give us victory every day when we walk in obedience to him. And so we see then that Joshua now comes against this numerically and superior enemy and he wins a great victory in chapter 11. And the key to victory was obedience to God. Take a look at chapter 11, verse 15. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded. And then look at verse 23. We read there, So Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. That's amazing. God's... God promised Joshua victory. And wherever Joshua placed his foot, there he would find victory. And God is saying to us, in essence, I've given you the land. Now go and walk through it. Get your feet wet if you need to and, and take all that I've given to you. And so we see Joshua had embraced that call and so he led Israel to conquer the land. Now we move into the distribution of the land, chapters 12 through 24. Um, If you have kids, you might want to go. We're going to be probably till about 8.30. So chapter 12 then gives us a list of the battles um, fought, the kings conquered. Now that Israel was in the land, they needed to find out how big this land was. And so uh, they go and take a survey of the land. And the rest of these... uh, of these chapters, then kind of reads like a real estate contract saying, okay, this is the portion that's going to be allotted to so and so, and it was this big and that long and this wide and so on and so forth. And uh, they surveyed the land, and by now Joshua and Caleb are well into their 80s, but they're still leading. They're still leading Israel in word and in deed. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. We don't like growing older, do we? You know, we're thinking, oh, you know, it's freedom 55 or freedom 75 now. Um, you know, we don't, we don't like to think about growing older, but getting older doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that, God, that our usefulness to God is at end. You know, that, that's the exciting thing about walking with the Lord. He's never done with you un- until he takes you home. There's always something we can do. And there was still much work to be done, and Joshua was ready, was ready and willing to do it, and so was Caleb. And so we see this land distributed then by Lot, beginning in verse 6, to each tribe, uh, to the remaining nine and a half tribes, because there was one and a half tribes that had received their uh, inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. And then in verse 13, we read about a troubling situation. Um, There were still people, Canaanites, inhabiting the land. God had instructed the Israelites that they were to dispossess and to remove them. They were not to remain in the land, but they didn't. And next week, as we enter into Judges, you'll see the result of that. See, Scripture instructs us to be consecrated, to be set aside for a holy purpose. And then we are, we are to separate ourselves from, from these sinful influences, these things that aren't pleasing to God. When we hold on to things, they do become a snare and a temptation to us. And it was true, as it is true for us, it was true for the Israelites, and we can see this in, in what happened to them. Um, because the remaining Canites, those that, that remain among them, continue to cause trouble for them over the years, and eventually became a thorn in their sides. I want you to listen to what Skip or read what Skip Heitzig said about this. He said, even a little bit of evil or compromise in your life will eventually bite you. You know where you are most vulnerable to sin, and if there's a pet sin you don't deal with immediately, harshly, and radically, it will grow. Sin is not something we can control, especially as it grows. It is a virus that will ultimately control and destroy us if we neglect to get rid of it. And so they failed to do that. They allowed some of the inhabitants to remain in the land. And then we see the allotment beginning in chapters 14 through 17. Uh, again, we see Canaanites not being completely removed. In some cases, the Israelites made them slaves, turned them into slave labor. Um, but we have to, we have to think, it's not, it's not good to use ungodly means and methods to do the work that God has called us to do. And you may you may find, as the Israelites did, that when we do this, that we actually become the slave to the master. And eventually these Canaanite slaves banded together and came against their Israelite masters and in fact enslaved them. Then we see Joshua setting up the tabernacle in Shiloh in chapter 18. It had previously been in Gilgal, but Joshua wisely centers it in the nation, the geographical center And that tells us that that Christ is to be our center. You know, think think of a wheel. Where's the hub in a wheel? Is it it offset? No, it's in the center. It's the only place that the hub should be because that's what makes the wheel go round and round. And Christ is to be our center. And verse 3 tells us in chapter 18 that there were still seven tribes which hadn't received their allotment. Why? Why? because they hadn't taken any initiative. God said, where they placed their sole of their foot, they would take the land. But they still needed to go out and take it. Now reading and studying the scriptures is good. But we need to apply it to our lives. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, a man or woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what, what we should desire. And it it takes initiative. Then in chapter 20, we see the cities of refuge being appointed. These cities of refuge were for anyone uh, who was accused of involuntary manslaughter. Um, they could flee to these cities in order to receive a fair trial by the judges of that city. Jesus Christ is our refuge. We run to him. In chapter 21, the Levites then receive their cities from the inheritance of the tribes There was always to be a priest nearby to offer instruction in the law and the scriptures as Moses had been instructed to do in Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 10, where it says they shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Jesus is our high priest. It is God's heart then, uh, as it is now, that God's people learn his word. It's it's important. I've kind of gone back to memorizing scripture again. And yeah, it takes time. It takes effort. But it's something I believe that's important. I want to put the word of God in my heart. So when I run across situations, I can call it back and go, you know, Lord, you said this, and I'm going to hold on to that promise, that truth. It's important that we are fed a a consistent exposure to biblical truth, always keeping Christ at the center of everything that we do. Now, as we close our study in chapters 23 and 24, this now marks the end of the leadership of Joshua. Um, He reminds the people Uh, what God has done for them. Um, He says in in 23, verse 3, you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations before you, for the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. So everything, Joshua reminds them, everything that God said he was going to do, he has done. They received land that they hadn't worked for. They received houses they hadn't built. Gardens which they hadn't planted. God had done it all for them, and then we see Joshua's final instruction to them, beginning in chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua lays the gauntlet down for us as he did for his people. You see, commitment to follow Christ begins at home. It begins at home. A nation is only as strong as the families that form it. And this is something for us to consider. Because following Jesus is both an individual and a collective responsibility. Individually, we must choose to serve the Lord. And then collectively, we serve the Lord together. I want you to take a look at verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. And so Joshua records their affirmation, and he sets up a monument as a witness. And not long after this, Joshua, being 110 years old, dies and is buried in the mountains of Ephraim. What an amazing man. What an amazing story. So many lessons that we can take away tonight. Here's just a few of them. Whatever God starts, he finishes. He is the author and finisher of your faith, Hebrews 12, verse 2. And the book of Joshua is a great example of God keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a promise of which you, as a believer, are a recipient. Two, conviction requires a response. Rahab and her family seem to have been the only ones in all of Jericho who actually move from their fear of the Lord to some kind of faith in, in God. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8-13. through 13. It's one thing to know you need to get right with God. It's another to act on it. Three, God's promises include blessings, not just for the next life, but for this one too. While we have seasons of battle in this life, hardship, trials... God also gives us times of rest and recovery. And four, learn to trust God on a day-to-day basis. God didn't just want Israel to conquer. He wanted them to trust him as they did so, step by step and day by day. God bless you guys. Come back next Wednesday as Pastor Brent will lead us into Judges and we'll see the result of the Israelites not taking their affirmation to follow God seriously. And it wouldn't take very long. And you know, guys, it happens to us as well. You know, as often as we come to church on Sunday, as often as we make that commitment, I'm going to follow the Lord, I blew it this week, I'm going to follow the Lord, we very quickly can get off track again. Don't let that happen to you. Be obedient to what God says. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship. Don't be a lone wolf thinking you've got it, you've got it made. You can figure it out yourself. Come and, and join us on, on Sundays and through the week at the various studies and come back on, on Wednesday. God bless you guys.